What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength of Physique with your hosts Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are bettering themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength of Physique. We got the godfather, the one and only I can't, I, again, Chris, the, he, Dr. Joe, I usually have this weird lame joke, but I've been told not to say it. So I'm not going to say it, uh, but don't be surprised oh. if I slide it in, in the end. <laughs> um, but well, Dr. You, Joe, you, so, so you just can't say that, Adam, start yeah. and, and not say the joke. But I, I feel like it's just a necessity for me now. You know, it's I feel like old. it is. So he used to always say all of our two listeners or four listeners, and we were two of them. So, but then one of our friends were like, Listen, you have more than two listeners. You gotta stop saying that. So I was like, yeah. "Can I just say six? And I'm like, "No, you can't say that. It's just me. <laughs> D- double so, digits now, at least. So I, I hope, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully. So tell tell our listener listeners a little about yourself and your background, please. Well, that is uh, that's a little bit of a long story. So I'll try and keep it as short as possible. But uh, I I grew up just a, a pretty unhealthy, chubby little kid, and uh, that, as so many people do, ended up catapulting me into caring a little bit more about health and fitness, especially for sports. So once I got up into little league and started playing baseball, I wanted to be better, started lifting weights. And then, um, you know, the rest of the story is, is written in terms of me deciding, Hey, I want to do this for a career. Uh, went to school actually for orthopedic physical therapy. That's, that's what I thought was going to be my, my thing. I always loved that the training game since then, just learning, learning all the biomechanics, everything you do as a physical therapist was a, a foundation I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for. But I was also a bodybuilder by that time in terms of, of competing and had uh, moved toward winning my pro card in the WNBF. And so I decided I, I need to know more if I'm going to if I'm going to do this as a serious hobby, I, I've got to up my game. So I ended up doing a, a doctorate in nutrition and as I got to be a little bit more um, friendly with the people in Chalo Publishing, Natural Bodybuilding and Fitness, WNBF, they asked me to start writing some articles, which went well. And I became their, their science editor for about 15 years. And um, that's where a lot of people, you know, this is, this is pre-social media. So, so back when people like, like Lane Norton and Eric Helms would actually go to Barnes and & Noble and, and get magazines to read, you know, back in the old days when, when people still did that. Uh, you know, that, that's where we kind of created this whole movement toward personal nutrition coaching. So uh, that's, that's, that was my start. And uh, now that it's been about 20, 25 years since then, and we've just been just churning along. So you're, to- you're like a jack of all trades. What would you identify yourself as? Or do you like having a very broad spectrum where you can help a wide range of people? You know, it's probably a little bit eclectic in terms of with with a doctorate in nutrition and being a pro bodybuilder, you know, working with with coaches and clients. You know, that's that's my wheelhouse. But at the same time, I also have a a second doctorate in health education, so I'm a little bit, you know, broader base in terms of people's overall health and fitness. And uh, then I also did a, a master's degree in creative and nonfiction writing and another one in health psychology and another one in social science. And so on, on the behavioral side and just what makes us human and so forth, I mean, that's, that's kind of my hobby horse that I love, but that also ties back into this because, you know, every client we work with or every coach, we're trying to help develop a business, you know, they're real people, they, they function in the world collectively. And so you know, that's, that's been a fun thing I've been able to integrate that I think has been very helpful. 
And do you still do any type of physical therapy work or is that just more so like it's in your, your toolbox now and it really helps you out? Exactly like that, uh, Chris. I, you know, in our own performance center lab and so forth, you know, everybody's got an in injury or they're, they're working around something, they need a little extra biomechanic training. And so it comes in handy uh, and, and I'll, you know, kind of treat people by showing them what to do, you know, even, even different physical modality techniques and so forth. But, but no, I don't have a, a sign on the door that says, Hey, come in here for physical therapy. Okay, now, cool. could you explain that process of just getting all those degrees was, how was that doing all of those degrees and still like being known as again, the godfather of like flexible dieting and really getting this nutrition coaching um, wheelhouse going. So how, how was that time period in your life? You know, I, I tell people all the time, the hardest thing you'll ever do is get a bachelor's degree. Like if you, if you have to spend four years grinding through something like that and trying to decide what you're going to do with your life, like that's, that's a big freaking deal, but then you can get a master's degree done in 12 or 18 months. Or if you're like me, it may take you three years because you're just taking one class at a time. But you, you know, you know, when you've got a couple decades to play with, it's just, you know, I, I've just never stopped. And so as soon as I'm done with one thing, I start another, but it's, it's usually one class at a time, so I can really focus and, and learn and, and enjoy it. But uh, you know, you, you throw in a few decades, and you end up with a with a little little sheepskin on the wall. Now, by far, what has been your most favorite degree that you've uh, gotten for yourself? Oh man, that's that's a. I'm going to answer that two different ways because physical therapy has been the most useful because. As somebody who's been training for 40 years, I'm constantly like I'm, I'm literally sitting on an ice pack right now because I have a strained piriformis. Uh, so, you know, knowing how to take care of yourself is important. But I, I have to say the masters I did in creative and nonfiction writing was the most intellectually stimulating and challenging thing uh, I, I've ever done. I, I will say some of the classes I did in social psychology at Harvard were great because you're you're it, you're with world-class professors people who are the world experts in a particular topic but it's also very cold and static you know they don't give a shit about you you're you're sending papers into a ta of a ta of a ta uh you know but but in a, in a course like i did in, in connecticut you know that the master's in writing it's it's just it was just fantastic yeah, that's, I remember Paul, when you first, when I first met you at the ProVisic experience last year, he said he had like 20 degrees. I was like, huh? But I, and then now just kind of hearing elaborating a little bit more, it's again, it's impressive um, for you to continuously go to school. So um, I think that's something that we kind of almost take for granted because we, we almost get, we get drowned in it. It's like, man, I just can't wait to be over. I can't wait to be over. And then a lot of people, they get, in, uh, they just get sedentary with it and they don't stimulate that mind uh, enough to continuously grow. So um, I look up to that aspect of you continuously learning and continuously stimulating that mind so you can better yourself and just the world that you uh, are working with. So um, recently, right, you had been at the, the second annual ProVisique experience and then you really talked a lot about uh, metabolic uh, flexibility and the metabolic set point. Um, so to kind of, I guess, start that topic, could you go ahead and define those terms for us, please? Yeah, I, I think it's more important than ever, at least it is to me. It, it, it was at the beginning of this year that I created the, the Flexible Dieting Institute because as the person who brought flexible dieting into the industry, as, as a way just simply to show people you don't have to live by a static, rigid diet. If, if a coach or a trainer says, hey, eat, eat, eat tuna and rice six times a day, 
you know, you can, you can do the math. You can, you can swap out your, your tuna for chicken. You can have a different carb source. You can even mess around with meal timing and spacing. But obviously in 20 or 25 years, there has been a lot of, of misinformation or bastardization, you know, people taking it to an extreme where they think as long as they're just, you know, hitting the numbers, quote unquote, everything's good. And, and there are still so many physiological principles we're missing if we're just doing that. So I, I, I love to, to do kind of a deep meta-analysis type literature review in, in topics like this. And I, and I did this earlier this year, looking at the metabolic switch. So you guys will be very familiar with the fact that you can either use glucose as energy or, or lipids and you kind of toggle back and forth. But there are some pretty defined ways you can control that process. And at one super, super far extreme, and I'm not a proponent or fan of pure ketogenic dieting, but when you are keto adaptive, you're, you're obviously moving that metabolic switch purely over to using lipids as energy. And you become more efficient at that. You know, one particular study showed that when you're keto adaptive, you actually use body fat with 40% with greater efficiency. So somebody down at the other end where they're getting all the carbs they want, maybe they're in maintenance, they, they try and just create a little bit of a calorie deficit, they go back and forth, they're kind of playing over here at this end. Glucose disposal is very inefficient. You're, you're not necessarily converting lipids into ketone bodies or, or glucose efficiently in the liver. Uh, you know, it, it, takes a, it takes a strong adaptive stimulus to make that happen. And like I said, I, I, I don't want people to go all the way over here and say, oh, Joe, Joe says keto's the best, you know, you 40% more efficient. You, you want to be on that side, like you, you can start off just by being in a calorie deficit and, and still just be monkeying around over here. But when you start including time restricted feeding, where it's like, well, I don't know, maybe I need four hours between meals or, or five between these meals. You know, why am I eating every two hours or every time I feel a little craving, I'm running to the, the kitchen you know, all that does is keep you constantly using glucose. So by even getting into, you know, some form of intermittent fasting, whether it's a 10 hour window, 12, 14, you know, whatever you want to do, as long as you create the process by which your body stays over here, where you start getting better at glucose disposal, Chris, you mentioned off camera, hypoglycemia, you know, cravings go away, hunger goes away, your body physically just gets better at using fat as energy. And so it's more efficient. You can, you can lose up to 40 or 50% more body fat on, on the same isocaloric, you know, calorie intake. And, and so, you know, if you just say, oh, flexible dieting, count your macros, make the math work. And that's all you tell somebody you're missing 90% of the ball game. You know, there are still principles in physiology and metabolic science that, that benefit people. Now, so with that, that you know, it's kind of working that, that set point theory, are you, is that are, for your clients or for yourself or for anybody, are, is there like a specific rigid meal frequency schedule? Or again, with like flexible dieting and a lot of what we've kind of been taught um, is like, as long as you're, you know, in a caloric balance or a caloric uh, deficit or surplus, like things are going to have to move. Um, but from what I, what I kind of picked up a little bit from your, your, your speech was more of right? If we can kind of, again, kind of dip into more of a lipolysis energy system, um, we're able to, again, eat, like you said, eat a little bit more calories and kind of still be able to see results better in that aspect. Yeah. So how are you, I guess, manipulating those certain variables to get the most bang out of your buck while eating the most amount of calories? 
So, so it's certainly contextual. It depends on your metabolic capacity, depends on your even time of day. So if, if for example, somebody trains really hard in the morning, I'm not going to say, oh, you should only eat every four hours. They may need to eat every 90 minutes for two or three meal cycles. And then in the afternoon, they can start extending that window a little bit when the energy demands are less. So it, it's totally contextually driven, but it, it's also a, a point where, like you said, as long as there's a calorie deficit, you know, you're off to the races. That's, that's what you need. It's just calories in calories out, but there is a definite sweet spot. One meta analysis I read uh, and looked up several of the actual studies showed that the, you know, the calorie deficit is the starting point. That's the doorway that then when you start just paying attention to not constantly titrating food into your body, every time you're hungry, if you, if you have some defined time restricted windows, then you lose a little bit faster and, and more efficiently then you get into some form of intermittent fasting. And, and like I said, I'm not a fan necessarily of, of a 16 hour window. I think 12, 13, 14 works well for some people, which, you know, in, in old school dieting, it's just simply like not eating after dinner, not eating before bed. And, and that, that really does make a difference. I've even taken some general population clients who are type two diabetics and hyporeactive glycemics. And, and it's tough because they're, they're having legitimate severe cravings and low blood sugar symptoms but just opening those windows up between meals, just, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, give yourself a week or two to acclimate a little bit more, a little bit more. Then all of a sudden they're only eating four, five meals a day and, and where they couldn't lose body fat before because they were so uncomfortable, always hungry, always feeling hypoglycemic. Now they feel amazing. They feel more energy. You know, even in myself, I decided, you know, I, I wanted to experiment with some of this. And so I started doing a, a one meal a day fast once a week. So Mondays I fast from Sunday night dinner to Monday night dinner. I, I did this for a medical fasting class, you know, way back 20, 30 years ago. And in the results you feel are tremendous. Like the first day I did this, the first week, I felt like I was going to die at about that 14, 16 hour window. I mean, I'm, I'm physically shaking. I'm hungry. It's not just a little hunger pang. It's like, I'm going to die. But I, I fought through it, made it 24 hours. The next week, 50% reduction in symptoms. Even the next few days, you're just not even hungry. After two or three weeks, I can go 24 hours without eating and it doesn't even bother me. Like my body is just that much more adapted, as you said, at, at lipolysis. And, and so no longer does your, your body just, or, or your, your world just revolve around food. You know, you feel like I can control food. It's not controlling me. But, you know, the, the, the first question I would have if I were in your shoes is, well, like, that's obviously stupid because you're going to lose lean body mass. But this is where that sweet spot comes in. Researchers show that once you get to that point of, of some form of consistent time-restricted feeding, intermittent fasting, you become more sensitive to what they would call appropriate uh, auto autolytic experience or, or macrophagic processes where your body actually starts to actively suppress lean body mass catabolism. So in one study, 34 men who were doing uh, intermittent fasting with a 16 hour window, they actually preserved 100% of lean body mass where other guys, this, 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 the test group that was not doing this or the, the, the normative group, you know, they, they lost lean body mass as you would expect. So there's almost a super compensation of preserving lean body mass. When your body starts feeling like, man, I'm not getting food here all the time. I need to preserve what's important. Just like we preserve cardiac muscle or brain tissue, things like that. 
Yeah, because I uh, when you talk about that, that was like the first thing that came to mind because there's plenty of studies and even Dr. Campbell will even uh, vouch for them. It's like you want to have protein every like three to four hours to kind of stimulate muscle protein synthesis. And I remember hearing your talk and I was like, hold on, isn't that kind of counterintuitive of what we've always heard and what we've always wanted? So with setting that set point, um, your body is getting is realizing it's more important to preserve lean body mass. Or it, it, like you said, it, we're getting more efficient, stimulating like policies. How, I guess, how long does it take to kind of get to this, this quote unquote, I guess, set point? Or is there a specific time frame? I know you said the, for after the first time you did it, you saw 50% reduction in those signs and symptoms. And obviously it's going to be different for everyone. But what has, the, from you, what you've read from the literature, what is a certain time frame for, I guess, to kind of get those results and kind of feel those benefits from the, the fasting period? It, it's, it's very much a continuum, just like if you were talking to, to you know, Dominique D'Agostino, and he would say, man, it takes you three or four months to get keto adaptive. And once you're there, even if you have a little bit of carbohydrate, you can, you can snap back very quickly because that's where your body is. You, you are, you're creating a new threshold. So if, if it takes three or four months to get to that 40% of increased efficiency at turning body fat into glucose or, or ketone bodies, you know, I, I would say you're going to, you're going to see that, that gradual titration to that level. But, but what I would also say is, is recall a couple other variables in, in protein synthesis. Number one, like caffeine or any other adaptive chemical if you're constantly just inundating your body with protein, amino acids, nitrogen around the clock, you become more, more desensitized to it. And it takes more of that to even get a, a, a threshold response. And so other studies have shown that by doing some protein fasting, some bigger windows, you actually increase your efficiency at using amino acids. So, so catabolism and anabolism is really an over time spectrum. So it's not just, you know, did I, did I catabolize a little bit more lean body mass during this particular window, you know, meal window or, or day it, it's week after week, after week, after week. And so I, I, I do think obviously what Dr. Campbell would say, protein, protein synthesis, duh, like that's, that's the bedrock of, of, of muscle tissue. But when you, when you go out an orbit or two, these other things can, can help you stay in a calorie deficit or, or even maintenance and, and not lose that anabolic edge. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying that the fear that everybody has of, man, if I don't eat protein around the clock, I'm going to lose muscle is just not true. And, and the ability. So what's the meal frequency and timing, I guess, is not as important but it is depending on the individual. Is that what it's sounding like? And if you change your metabolic switch, then likely even protein timing, meal frequency, that all sort of goes out the window per individual. What, what would you say is possibly your pro bodybuilder? If you were, are, do you still compete? I don't compete now. No. Retail. So if you were to take someone through a show, what approach would you recommend they, they take? So this is a great example. I, I, I love doing case studies on myself and, you know, back when I was competing, I would probably eat, I mean, I did compete, you know, or I, I did do 200 to 225 to 250 grams of protein a day, just around the clock, did that for 20 years. 
when I retired, I, I my, my protein intake automatically just dropped in half because I just didn't care as much. It was no longer a huge priority. So after an entire decade of just being in an off season and, and I kept my body weight within seven to nine or 10 pounds of my contest weight, I, I, I competed at 150. I never got above 160 for a decade after I retired. I, I did a, a body comp analysis and I had lost five pounds of lean body mass, which I thought, you know, that, that's fair. Uh, I wonder how long it would take me to recoup this. So all I did was go up to two times the RDA of protein for me, which was 125 grams of protein. I had my, my entire career as a bodybuilder, I, I ate twice that amount. It only took me three months to regain that five pounds on 125. After a 10-year off-season of eating less than 100 grams of protein a day, all I had to do is bump it up to 125 consistently for three months. All that lean body mass came back, and I was right where I was when I retired as a pro. Then I decided, well, I want to repeat that. I'm going to go back to just you know eating whatever I want. And after about a year or so, my, my lean body mass dropped back down five pounds, just another perfect five pounds. And I thought, okay, that's, that's kind of speaking of set points, you know, as long as I'm doing resistance training and, and eating any amount of calories, like that's, that's where I'm at. Bump back up to 125, bam, two to three months later, all five pounds of lean body mass came back on and I could visibly see it and feel it and my strength increased. But when I would go over two times the RDA, that's when the law of diminishing returns was kind of in effect for me. It just didn't really help me that much more. Yeah, I think that's a huge, that's a great point because I think nowadays we still, we overconsume protein. I know there's one study that we looked at uh, neuromuscular, they were eating about 4.4 grams per pound of body weight. Um, and they just felt constipated and they didn't reap any benefits from those individuals that eaten 2.2 grams per pound of body weight. So um, I think that, again, was, that was the norm back in the day, man. Like, right, like yeah, me, me eat eating 250 grams a day was a lightweight, like compared uh, to what other guys were eating back then. I remember when I was an undergrad, I was killing almost 300 grams of protein and thinking like, <laughs> oh man, I need more. I need more. And I remember there were certain points if I didn't hit almost 300 grams of protein, I would take two, pro, uh, two protein shakes and just slam it down before bed. It's like, now I'm anabolic as hell and we're going to make some gains. So I think it's, it's a really good point that you can get the bang out you can get the most bang out of your book by just hitting that minimal threshold and then shuffling all those other um calories to other uh, macronutrients that can help fuel your performance and actually allow you to put on some lean body mass or just stimulate some energy um in that aspect so um in that regard what what are like i guess the best eating habits for those individuals that are hypo or hyperglycemic will you kind of introduce these fasting principles for them um, I know you had spoken a little about that you kind of gradually increase those um, fasting periods for about 15 minutes um, for somebody that is, again, type two diabetic or hypo or hyperglycemic and really has to pay attention to those blood sugar levels. How what is the first approach that you're kind of analyzing with them? Yeah so, yeah. so remember, most of the time you're dealing with general population clients who are describing, you know, health conditions like this. And, you know, I, I'll say, first of all, let's let's talk about this from a a biochemical physiological perspective. And I'll explain the metabolic switch and metabolic positioning, metabolic set point. And I'll say, look, you know, we, we literally have to get you depleted enough of, of glycogen. We've, we've got to at least get the liver almost empty. 
you can't be just shoving food on top of food on top of food in your stomach and, and never never need to switch over to using glucagon as an as a, a hormonal retrieval source and so we, we have to at least get in that direction. And, and I have to get some buy-in. I, I have to say, look, you know, I, I promise you're going to feel better. It, once you get there, it is amazing. You have less hunger and so forth. And, and it's very difficult for people who suffer those symptoms because they're real symptoms. It's not in your head. I mean, you're, you're really feeling like you're going to pass out and die. And so I'll say, look, all we have to do is a first step is be very thoughtful about your hunger. So every time you're hungry now, you may grab a Tic Tac or a mint, or maybe you grab a, you know, a bite of a cookie, or maybe you eat a dozen cookies. I don't know. But, but what I want you to do now is think about placing your meals where you want, you know, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snack, snack, whatever works for you. Let's, let's make it reasonable around training and, and, you know, sleep and wake and so forth. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to get them to make some massive overhaul. And then I'll say every time you're hungry, you know, drink a glass of water, take a five minute walk, just, you know, breathe, wait 10 or 15 minutes and see what happens to that hunger. And you guys know it goes away. Like you're not, you, it doesn't get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It goes away and you may not even feel a, another wave of hunger for an hour. And so I'll say, just listen to your body. And this is, this is trying to get them to understand interoceptive awareness, you know, what's really happening in my body. And so all of a sudden they're like, oh yeah, I did that. That was great. I was able to wait 30 minutes or an hour. And then you're getting them to trust their own physiology. And, and then the changes start to happen positively. All of a sudden they, they stop getting those hunger cues. And some of these people who are type two diabetics and, and on medication like metformin or you know something like that, they, they start having to reduce their medication because they just don't need it. Their, their A1C is coming down. And so you just have to get them behaviorally to, to listen and, and trust themselves enough to let the biology take over. And then it just becomes an upward spiral of, of success, you know, breeding more success. So for, for individuals, it's sounding like myself, I need to stop eating every single time I get hungry um, because that's what I currently do, but I'm also bulking. So I'm a little confused. I probably need to plan my meals a little bit better and have just really big meals. But even if I was to start tailoring fats more so than carbs, eventually I feel as if from what we're saying that I would be more receptive to tapping into my own energy sources. Is that? Well, there is a different Chris in trying to intentionally gain weight. But but let, let me start by telling you when I was eating for maintenance. So, you know, I, I, I let my body weight come up, you know, four or five pounds a year for, for a, a few years. Cause I, I felt like I wanted, wanted to work again on some, some powerlifting type goals and so forth, you know, regain some, some lean body mass, even above what I could in the one fifties. And so at that point, what I was over consuming yet, yet had, you know, spent a year or two maintaining I would have symptoms like that, even though I was not in a calorie deficit, I could go start my training, do start a, an aggressive cardio or training session. And I would feel hypoglycemic, like to the point I had to stop my workout, like make a protein shake, take a 10 minute break, and then start coming back into the workout slowly. 
you know, sometimes because I, I stay up late at night reading or studying, you know, I've eaten dinner, I've had a late night snack, but then it's like midnight or one in the morning. And I, and I physically had to get out of bed and get something to eat because I was so hungry. And, and that's just to maintain my weight. As soon as I wanted to start losing body fat again, uh, I, I've lost about 10 or, you know, 12 pounds in the last couple of months. Um, I, I had to start taking those calories out somewhere. So I, I took out a mid-morning snack, like a granola bar. I stopped getting out of bed for that particular snack. And, and just a couple little changes like that, all of a sudden, Chris, all, all of those hypoglycemic feelings that I would have that were legitimately physical, they just stopped. They just went away. And, and it was because, again, my body is better at lipolysis. I'm not, I'm not constantly riding this, this insulin and glucose roller coaster in my bloodstream. So for you trying to gain, you know, you're, it's, it's obviously the other side of the continuum. But at the same time, I do think you can feel better if you do have slightly larger meals, make your body use all of that up, you know, before you, you refill your, your stomach. And, and I think that could help you through that process. Obviously, you're, you're probably using mostly high quality foods, but, uh, but, but I think you could improve some of those symptoms as well. And so this is actually something that Dr. Campbell, I love that he did it. And he actually made, he didn't make, he highly, it was an assignment, a reflective assignment that you could either, it's like you do it, you get credit. And it was a 36 hour fast. And the biggest thing he wanted people to accomplish was feeling those feelings of hunger. And I didn't attempt it because I'm hypoglycemic, but what are, what's your thought on people that are diabetic trying to fast for longer times? If you are a type one or type two diabetic, I would say absolutely don't do that. Start, start by just increasing those windows. But it's funny, it's funny that Dr. Campbell does that because that's, that's when I was introduced to this. I, I, in this medical fasting class I had, um, we were encouraged to, to, to do this one meal a day, once a week fast, which I did. And then for extra credit, you could do an extended fast. So I did a five day, just pure water fast, no, no calories whatsoever for five days. And it's, it's insane how you feel because obviously the hunger and so forth goes away. But, but your ability to be in tune with what's happening to your body is just otherworldly. It, it's, it's nothing you ever experience until you get that deep into a fast. And you, you guys may know Lex Friedman, a, a podcaster. He's an, he's an AI computer engineer from MIT who started this, you know, his, his own podcast. He, he loves doing crazy physical feats. So even as a nerd, you know, he's, he's been on Rogan's podcast half a dozen times. He's, he's trained with Goggins. And so for the last month or so, he has done just one meal a day, every single day for 30 days. And he said, that's, that's the greatest thing to him is that you, you see hunger differently. Like it's no longer this driving force where you think you're going to die and you got to go wolf down a Snickers bar or something. It's just like, yeah, it just goes away and you just wait until it's time to eat. And then you eat your normal meal. You don't eat 3000 or 4,000 calories in that one meal. It's more moderate. Um, he's, he's not doing it obviously for bodybuilding or anabolic reasons, but he's like, he, he said, I love the fact that I just feel like I understand my body better. It's not just this mental game. And, and I, and I, I love that, that Bill Campbell did that for you guys. Yeah. I remember when he had made us do it. I was like, I, I, 
do Ramadan. So like, it's nothing crazy, but it's almost like you said, doing that five day fast or doing the month of Ramadan, you almost become numb to things. Um, or for me specifically, when I start to feel really hungry, the first thing that I do is just take a nap. I literally just lay down. Okay. It's time to go to sleep because I just physically can't do something. I guess that's mentally stimulating. Um, but I always wondered what, what it was. Is it you kind of being more intuitive what with actual hunger or was that a hormonal aspect of like, I just was never hungry even at night. And I was just like, I'm, I don't feel like eating. I, I don't know what it, it never made sense to me, but my, I remember my father would always say, Hey, your stomach's just shrinking. You're just not, you're just not hungry and your body's adapting to that process. Um, so I, I, again, I, st- it still fascinates to me to this day that even when I like, sometimes when I water cut for powerlifting meets or when I do Ramadan, I have a better, a better intuitive approach of like, Hey, hey, am I really hungry? Am I just bored? And I think again, being able to decipher between the two for gen pop or for whatever goal you may have um, is really important because you're able to really manipulate the mental aspect of dieting. And I think, and I think everyone in here would agree with us. Dieting is a skill and the more you do it, the better you get at it. hundred percent. And, and what you just said, like your stomach shrinking, there are definite physical hormonal responses happening and you still have to use your will to stay on track. Like, like yesterday I've been doing this, this one meal a day, once a week fast now for about eight weeks Yesterday was one day I just didn't want to do it. I'm like, fuck it. I'm starving. I'm so busy. I'm just, I don't need to do it this week. But I decided, no way. I'm going to end my streak just because I'm in a pissy mood. I'm going to, this is, this is when, this is when champions are made, right? You, if, 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 when it's easy and you do it, who, who gives a shit? But when it's hard and you can do it, that's when it matters. And so I did it anyway. And then I went home and had even the smallest dinner I've had, you know, in the last, you know, two months of doing this. And, you just, you, it, the physiology makes it doable and, and easier, but you still end up with a, a more resilient, sharper mind and, and you're increasing your willpower. I mean, willpower and resilience are also scalable and fatigable skills, as you just said. So for, for what you just said about Ramadan, I think, I think that's why every single religion and spiritual discipline includes fasting for that reason. You know, the, the ancients realized, yeah, this is part of this, you know, not everybody can do this to, to withhold a biological need is, 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 you know, body mastery. And when you can do that, you can, you can talk yourself into doing anything. So we'll switch it up a little, uh, from, from that and focus it more towards having a a successful prep and then getting off that prep, uh, possibly you, have seen some better experiences with this metabolic switch. Uh, I don't know if you try to use that for your clients. Do you still have clients? Or are you more of an mm-hmm. educator? So with your clients, do you use this metabolic switch in a way? Or is it more so tailored towards each person? And how do you set someone's metabolic rate up to be successful for a prep? Yeah, I'll give you an example just just along the lines of, of, of body type. So I had one IFBB pro bikini competitor who just has a a raging metabolism. So obviously we didn't have to worry about body fat loss efficiency. We were worried more about her, you know, not losing too quickly. So we just didn't have to do that. It was like, no, eat whatever you want, whenever you want, as long as it's working, it's fine. But then when you have somebody at the other end of the the continuum, who is, is a very tough, you know, endomorphic or, or hard loser, then you gotta be a little bit more, um, 
you know, strategic. And so one of my clients who is, uh, she's a, a professional rock climber and uh, she's under a hundred pounds, has to get down to about you know, 90 or so pounds to, to, to be competitive in a phenomenal physique. She also has, I think the world record for like chin-ups, um, which would make sense as a rock climber, but, 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 you know, a really slow metabolism. And so we were struggling to lose any body fat at all. And we've got calories just, you know, lower, lower, lower. I'm looking at food sources and meals and everything was fine. And I'm like, you know, finally, instead of just cutting calories, let's make sure we have a little bit more time between meals. Let's, let's only eat, you know, three meals a day plus a pre-workout snack. And that means, you know, sometimes you're going to go five or six hours between meals and bam, she started losing a pound a week on the same amount of calories but just because we're increasing the amount of time between meals where she has to use fat as energy, there's nothing else to use. So if, if you're, if you're talking about a meal being 300 calories or 400 or 500, you know, it's not like you're making a massive fat deposit because you ate, you know, 500 calories instead of 400, but you take out those, those little bits of each meal spread apart those windows a little bit. And that's where you get a lot of metabolic efficiency in terms of, you know, creating, uh, that, that, that conversion from lipids into ketones or glucose. And so, you know, that, that's why some studies have shown in an isocaloric trade, you know, you can lose 30, 40, 50% more body fat on the same calories because you're just more efficient at when you're using those calories and when you're, you're opening up those fasting windows. So for that professional rock climber that had a slow metabolism, I'm assuming she was consuming, sub 2000 calories then oh for sure and then for the individual the ifbb pro that had a higher metabolism was it like higher than 3000 4000 um so so uh the the ipb pro is you know they're, they're both drug free athletes but the ipb pro was you know 116 118 pounds okay. um so not a tremendous difference in in body mass the the rock climber you know 100 pounds or so uh but yes yeah, she she's down to a thousand to 1200 calories a day whereas my my ipb pro you know we never went below 1800 you know 2000 calories and and during the last month before her pro show, you know, debut this year, um, you know, we were at 400 grams of carbs a day, hundred grams of fat. I mean, she, she's getting close to 3000 calories a day. So again, you know, super, super endomorph, super, super ectomorph, you know, big difference in how you would treat them. Not everybody needs to, to worry about, you know, the, the, the meal spacing type things we're talking about. So when you approach any bodybuilding client, do you, take what they're giving you? Or if you have someone come to you and they're like, Hey, I need the best coach because I want to win my first show. Do you work them up to a higher metabolism or do you just use your knowledge to try to switch that metabolic switch? So it's a little bit of a misnomer in terms of how variable our metabolism really can be. There's some really great research on this. And and one particular study that I, I went over in, in Tampa, you know, Adam saw this was they took 34 postmenopausal women. So as, you know, sedentary, high BMI, everybody was close to 30 BMI. And, and they, they put them on the exact same calorie deficit. So they, they brought them in metabolic ward testing 10 days to baseline out their metabolic rates and say, okay, here's your food intake. They, they, they brought them in for these 10-day inpatient stints to, to retest them hormonally, the whole nine yards. 
they, they wanted to make sure everybody got under 25 BMI. And so some of these women were dieting for up to five months. They, they all finished between three and five months. Out of 34, I think, no, it's 24, 24 women, every single one of them except one, there was one outlier, their resting metabolic rates dropped 6% in that first 10-day stint, never dropped any lower. As soon as they came off of their diets, and this is, this is three to five months later, it only took 10 days for them to restore that 100%. So 6% drop right off the bat with a calorie deficit, held that right back up. And so, you know, even the presumption that, oh, we need diet breaks, we need to save our metabolism, we need to do this, we need to do that. It's so DNA driven and, and it's just in our genes for survival that again, because of those, those macrophagic sensitivities, we're just not going to lose a ton of everything. This, this was a hundred percent correlative to thyroid hormone. And as soon as their calorie intake came back up to maintenance, you know, T3, T4, TSH, everything went right back to normal and, and they were done. They didn't need, you know, months and months and months of metabolic rehab and so forth. So I, I just think a lot of that stuff is very showy and bro-y in even today's culture where we talk about, you know, oh, damage my metabolism, bro. I got to <laughs> fix it. Got to get a, get a hormonal rehab coach now. It's like all that stuff is so fucking stupid and non-scientific. Yet we all feel like it's kind of logical. Like it makes sense. Like, yeah, we have to do that. We got to take our time and do this incrementally. That doesn't make it, you know, irresponsible. That's still the right thing to do. But there's a lot more resilience physically than I think we give ourselves credit for until you are seriously, insanely lean for too long. You know, find a person who's going down to four or 5% body fat and they want to hold that for an entire year season. Yeah, you're, you're going to suffer and, you know, testosterone is going to come down and life is not going to go well. You're eventually going to start losing lean body mass, but you got a lot of survivability and resilience for, for months in that equation. So for that uh, study of uh, 45, 50 individuals that the metabolism only went down 6%, what, what do you think some reasons behind the metabolism just plateauing and not continuously going down with the, the diet? Well, I think because n number one, it was, it was pretty consistent, you know, e even though this was, you know, four 10 day inpatient stints inside of a three to five month study window, uh, they, they did have registered dietitians on staff actually giving them their food. This is your food, take it home and eat it for the next month. And then we'll come back, refill you, do all the, you know, metabolic testing. So it was as controlled for an inpatient outpatient study as can be. And so, you know, they had enough protein, they were given instructions on just baseline, you know, resistance training and so forth to, to stay moving. Um, but, but that's nothing that we wouldn't do anyway, right? As physique sport athletes. So I, I think that's just kind of the norm, but how many people do we really ever put through studies like that? You know, when, another thing to consider, Chris, is that we tend to over-focus on the, the androgenic hormones. And so yes, your testosterone can drop and your libido can drop and you feel like a total slug, but that doesn't mean your thyroid hormones dropping or your RMR is dropping that far. And so, you know, this, this was a, this was kind of a one of a kind study. I, I couldn't find many like this, um, that are really looking at those, those catecholamine hormones like epinephrine and so forth. And then you know, even, you know, thyroid exclusively to find that, that correlation. So 
what do you think some main drivers are that cause physique athletes to either have to increase their cardio or, uh, or eat less? Or what do you think some main causes that will be a driving factor for that? I am. That is, that is the perfect question. You, you just hit the money load here because that has been addressed and even a big data mathematician did a study looking at the Minneapolis starvation study. And, and they did, they've done other studies. Like even, even the one I mentioned uh, in terms of, you know, the, the postmenopausal women and so forth, they looked at every single correlate they could. And they found that it all came down to movement and energy expenditure. We will always default to our hunger cues. That's why weight gain recidivism is so high. That's why even among bodybuilders, you know, we, we tend to rebound pretty quickly because we just, we want to get back out of that hole. But, but it, it comes down to non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And, you know, you, are you familiar with, with Eric Lee Salazar, the IFBB pro from Texas trainer? No, I'm not. So he, he did this cool little, um, what was it? What was his name? Uh, Eric Lee Salazar. He's an IFBB pro. He worked with James Krieger, uh, Dr. Krieger as his you know coach last year. And he just put forth this little hypothesis. He's like, what, what if every couple of pounds I lose, I just add that to my body on a weight vest and ankle and, and wrist weights. So for the course of his prep, he lost 20 pounds by the end of that process, he was wearing a 20 pound combination vest and ankle weights on his hands and, and feet. And he never had to reduce his calories or increase his cardio because he, and, and he made himself move. You know, he was using a step counter. Uh, he made sure behaviorally he wasn't, you know, if before he would stand at a computer station, he wasn't all of a sudden sitting on the couch with his keyboard. He was just, he was, he was adamant to make sure his body movement and, and expenditure was identical and he was able to diet without reducing his calories below his initial drop which was the necessary deficit and did not have to increase calories and so again you know one one case study one anecdote but that is completely in line with what researchers have found and i would say that's extremely true non-exercise activity i'm sitting here moving my arm back and forth. I'm sure if I started losing weight, that's going to stop, et cetera. Um, so I think that's completely illogical. Uh, actually, it's really smart that he just continued adding weight to his body just to make up it. his arms going to have to lift the same amount of weight if he's losing weight. Um, yeah, so just muscle fiber by muscle fiber. That's, that's <laughs> kinetic energy all day long. Yeah. And what, after the diet, after the show, what would you say the best approach is? uh, recovery, reverse, uh, mixture, both. You know, I, I like to have people already at their, their full metabolic capacity going into a show like my IFBB client, uh, because number one, that's the way you win. I mean, you're, you're not going to come in stringy depleted. You're not, you're not suffering with, with a lot of risk of spillover because now your sensitivity to carbohydrates is much higher. So I really like for people to be ready for a contest at, at, the, the weight, the body comp they need to be. And then I'm reversing into the show, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, I wrote this series about this and I called it metabolic building. It's, it's kind of a dumb name now looking back because you can't really build your metabolism, but, um, uh, 
as soon as I wrote that particular article, um, you know, Lane Norton, you know, read those and he came out with reverse dieting, which I thought was a greater, you know, catchier name. Uh, but his, his application of that was kind of post-show, like don't do this weight regain. I, I was applying it to before the show. And, and I still think it's appropriate the way if, if you have to diet all the way down to the show, then absolutely take your time to increase your calories. It doesn't have to be like, you know, you get an extra five grams of carbs a day for the first week, 10 grams of carbs the second week. It's, you know, you can go up in 100 to 200 calorie increments and you can get there in four to six weeks. But I think it is a waste of anabolic potential if you just say, well, I'm going to jack my weight up 10 pounds within a week just so I can get out of that calorie deficit and feel better. I, I think I think you you give yourself less opportunity for a for a better fat free regain process. So you mentioned something that I constantly have a question on, and I have not put enough individuals through prep to see the difference. But what's your view on backloading versus front loading? Then, hmm. um, I, it's interesting because I started out. Um, Everybody, of course, just back in the 80s and 90s, we're just doing the traditional prep, which is, you know, a beginning of the week depletion, then a backload. And since everybody was always looking horrible the day of the contest, everybody looked their best two or three days before the day after the contest. That's when I started doing, it wasn't necessarily a front load, but it logically made sense to me to, if you're looking at peak week as a seven day window, you know, kind of find that glycogen ceiling early in the week. So, so get up as full as you can over the weekend. So while everybody else was depleting, you know, I was kind of loading, it wasn't a super compensation load. It was just, let's get up there. Let's find where that spillover line is. Let's, let's kind of titrate down a little bit during the middle of the week to make sure you're tight. And then you can, you can ramp back up subtly. So it was more of an undulating kind of load. And, and, you know, I helped more than 400 clients win pro cards, 150 pro titles. You know, I had a, I had a 15 year run where we just created this entire industry. Everybody said that was front loading, but it really wasn't. It was just not backloading. So now I've found that, you know, just, just having to move all the variables kind of up and then down and then back up it still leaves a lot of people at risk of just kind of missing that mark. So now I like to stay just a little bit lower at the beginning of the week and do a progressive load. And it may be very linear in that we're adding a little bit every single day. It may be pretty linear and then a little bit of a load at the end, but it's not a massive depletion in a load. I think a rapid front load is kind of silly because you're just like, you're loading super high here just to taper down and that's when you're reversing all of the variables. Now you're, you're depleting your muscle tissue of glycogen, which means water's leaving the muscle tissue. So, you know, maybe if somebody just has to try, you know, err on the side of being tight, you know, that can be a decent way to manage things. But I really find having all of those variables heading in the right direction, and then you being able to control that final process at the end, you, you have almost zero chance of missing it. I always tell clients, even if we do everything wrong at the end, you're still going to be 95% your best. Like we're going into contest morning, knowing you're 95% your best. We've got, we've got contest morning now to see how close we can get to that last 5%. 
but it's not a gamble. You know, it's not like, Ooh, did, did front loading work or back loading? And you're never going to know until you wake up on the morning of the show to see if you made it or not. How do you take the approach of increasing carbs then? Is it just gradual? Um, or do you do fat too? I guess going to the metabolic switch, do you do carbs only, or does it depend on the athlete if you're doing calorie, like more calories or is it carb-based or fat-based? How do you take that approach with the metabolic switch in mind? Yeah, you, you nailed it there with the fact that it's calorie dependent. So, so a client that's got a, a, a huge metabolism, a lot of food, you know, just more and more and more and more carbs is sometimes the wrong route. Sometimes you just want to slow down their ability to utilize those carbs. And so then I, I may add a little bit of fat. Um, it, there, there's another little bit of a misnomer in terms of like fat loading, because you don't load on fat, like fat just is fat. It, you're, it goes into your body, your body pulls it into fat cells, and that's it. You don't turn it into glycogen magically. Um, and so it, it is kind of a wasted thing for some people to say, you know, my coach fat loads me like I, I eat two jars of peanut butter the night before the show or something like that. But, um, you know, for you to for you to be responsible with carbs. And then as carbs are going higher, you could eventually think, you know, gosh, you know, I'm definitely bumping the line against possible spillover. So let's hold the line here on carbs, bring fat up, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 grams, again, something kind of moderate, and then your body will, will spare carbs. I mean, that's, that's one of the primary functions of fat is you're now, you're now sparing some carbs. And so you just don't run through them as quickly. But it's always with one eye on carbs first, and then again down to the context of their their calorie need. Awesome. Well, I think. Do you have any questions about that, Adam? Now you answered or you asked a lot what I was going to ask, so we're on the same page, man. So the something I recently saw on your Instagram was in related to becoming the best coach and to make a. I guess an Instagram slightly longer, an Instagram post slightly longer. Could you summarize what you think the, some of the key things of being the best coach possible and what are some things required to ultimately get there or what you personally experienced as well? Absolutely. Um, th this is one of those things that I think comes down to having a lot of experience. So, you know, when I tell you that I had tremendous success as a coach, 15, 20, 25 years ago, it, a lot of it was very mechanical. It's calling the right plays to get the right result. You know, that you're the offensive coordinator at that point, winning a game. Uh, now, because there are so many good qualified coaches out there, and, and I think qualifications are a must, uh, or at least I, I wish that were the case. So, so you guys working hard, getting graduate degrees in exercise science and nutrition, you know, you understand physiology. You, you guys are are qualified to be coaches, in my opinion. There are people without any secondary education whatsoever in nutrition, and just because they have some decent experience, you know, they can be an effective coach. But I think they really miss the mark at being comprehensive, being able to understand some of these underlying physiological processes, and 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 even just being a little bit more health minded. They, they tend to be like one trick ponies. You know, here's how I diet people. Here's how I peak people. If it works for you, great. If it doesn't, it was your fault. It's just like, that's their thing. And, and they, can, they can get a good following and they can make a career out of it. You guys have the baseline qualifications that I think makes a great coach. Then it comes down to just your level of humanity. 
You know, do you actually care about your clients? Are you giving them high service? Uh, do you care enough to get into, you know, it's, it's not like you're becoming their therapist, but, but you understand them as, as true people. And, and I think in today's coaching world, because it's so competitive, that last element of, of human connection is, is what will keep a career around because there's always going to be the next greatest flavor. There's always going to be somebody who's, who's the hot ticket on Instagram or something. And, and you can have an amazing career as a coach. And all of a sudden you're struggling to get clients because somebody else is out marketing you. And, and so just like if you were, if you were a car salesman, you know, your ability to make your clients want to come back to you because you're serving them well, it, it matters. So I, I kind of take the, the physiology and the mechanics of it for granted, because I, I hope guys like you are, are, are there and doing the job. So it really does come down to how well you can connect with people. And that's actually, I would say a repeating trend that we get on this podcast. And it's something that me and Adam always like bringing up. And that's why we asked this question is like psychology, human relations. Like that's not something that's taught in an exercise science program. At least it wasn't in ours. Uh, from a few that I've seen either, it, it's not like they teach you the psychology side of things. What do you think some important things are that you should do to actually connect or what services should you provide to make sure you're getting that correct connection with your clients? Yeah, another great question. So, you know, 20, 25 years ago, exercise science, like no, maybe, maybe four people in the country would go pursue that degree because what would you do with it? You'd be folding towels at Gold's Gym. And now you guys doing this, you know, you have, you know, doctoral programs you can teach in universities like, like Lenneke and Helms, and you have all these opportunities. You can create your own careers like, like, you know, we're all doing. So it's an amazing opportunity. And like you said, they don't, they don't, teach this in many schools. I think Bill Campbell, like he's one of the first people saying, yeah, this is actually a career. You can go get a degree in becoming a personal nutrition coach. Yeah. But that's very, very novel. And so to, you know, what can you do to really foster that? It, it's one of the things I love to, to teach my, my apex coach fitness professional mentorship program coaches. It's, it's, it's what we talk about. Like here's, here's how you create your business persona. First of all, what can you do that nobody else does? If, you, if you're just a nutrition coach, what does that even mean? What, what, what makes you more compelling than the next person? Why should I hire you? So I think you have to have some kind of specialization and, and it can be you know, the type of client demographic that you like working with. It can be just your personal interest, but, but don't make the mistake of being too much of a generalist. You know, be, be the best at one thing and you'll attract people just because you're that unicorn then it comes down to making sure you have the time. So every single client that I, I see coach shopping, there's only one thing they tell me. It wasn't like, yeah, I got just really sick of winning with that coach. They were too amazing for me. I just thought I'd go somewhere else. The only reason they leave a coach is that coach doesn't give a shit about me. They don't give me the time of day. I get one word responses. They don't respond to my email for three days. And now my new coach will text me back instantly. And so a lot of the newer coaches that have the time, they have the advantage at customer service. So, so for those of us who have more robust practices, 
you still have to find a way to serve people. And it's not always that you just hire coach after coach after coach. So somebody, somebody says, Hey, I want to work with you, Joe. And I say, great, good to meet you. You're going to work with Bob, you know, somebody you've never even heard of just because he's on my staff. You've got to find a way to connect with these people. And I think for, for most coaches, it means you have to have a cap on what you can physically do with clients. And you've got to find a way, you know, not to leverage your time, but find a way to make sure people are getting what they need. And, and, you know, some of that's through some, some group dynamic things. I, I do a daily live support chat with all of my clients and coaches. So Monday through Friday, noon every day, everybody knows they can get on this call and they've got me face to face. They can ask me questions. We every day is themed a little bit. So all my competitors come in on Wednesdays, you know, my general population clients know like Monday is their day, but they love to be in for all of them because it's all valuable information. But you know, that's, that doesn't usurp my normal formal check-ins and so forth. It's just an extra service because I want them to, to know they matter to me and that they can get that real, you know, FaceTime interaction. Yeah. I think that's something that's really underutilized is making it as personal as you can. Like I never want a client to feel like they're trapped to work with me. Like there's some individuals I tell them straight up front, like, I want you to be able to walk away sometimes in six months, say, Hey, coach, you gave me a lot of tools. I think I can handle on myself, but I want to work with you because you kind of give me that accountability factor. You make me feel like a part of ProVisique or you make me feel a part of this community and it's motivating. It's, it's, it's just fun. And when you have that spot on, um, the process and the journey just becomes that much more exciting and you get a lot more out of this, uh, this journey with health and fitness and it becomes, it carries over to other aspects in your life. And when you're able to take something like this, and carry it over to your your job or another hobby. Oh man, you gonna you gonna be unstoppable re really soon. Yeah, you know, probably half of my clients right now are clients I've worked with sometime in the last twenty years. You know, somebody I worked with ten years ago, they want to make a comeback. Somebody, I mean, I mean, it's it's unbelievable how much you know that happens, and and it's truly because you just treat people well. And like, like you said, Adam, when, you know, they don't need me all the time. They don't need me on a retainer every year of their lives, but when they need some help with health or nutrition, you know, that, that they know that's my guy. I'm going to go back to Joe. Now, since you've had such a, a great, great career and you've had this pivotal moment of being on our podcast now, what is I'd like career <laughs> highlight baby right here. There we go. Um, I always want to, again, I always ask this question to all of our guests, like three top books that you felt like you got the most out of and you would recommend to everybody, oh, not man. from a nutritional aspect or anything like that. Maybe, maybe nutritional book or just self-developing book. Top three. Let's so actually, I, let's share our insight too, Adam, because one book that I just thought of that we've never asked ourselves this on our podcast, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. That was a book that just changed my mindset. And like, even when I work with companies, it's like, if I have an issue with that company, I either need to stop having that issue with the company or leave. Like it's my decision. Uh, same thing. If I want to make more money, okay, stop complaining about not making enough and start figuring out ways to make more. Um, so go ahead and Give us some of your, sorry, I just, we, <laughs> no, I, I like that. <laughs> I, I want to learn from you guys. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, my top, top three books for me thus far um, is Conscientious Coaching, 
um, atomic habits, um, and the upside of stress. Those are my top three at the moment. Nice. Nice. Uh, if I turn my camera around, I, I have a two office suite that just looks like the New York City library. And so it's tough for me to, you know, give you just three, but I, I, almost as symbols of what they mean to me, they, they, they are perennially, you know, at the top of my mind, every mental health therapist that ever treats a client recommends Victor Frankl's book, Man's Search for Meaning, right? Yeah. And, uh, and that is one that will just rock your world. Like when, when you think that, you know, life has dealt you a bad hand, you know, re read man search for meaning and, and you'll, you'll realize that, that you've got some margin. You can, you can work a little harder. Um, a, a relatively new book by Robert Sapolsky is behave because as a neuroendocrinologist and primatologist, he is the world's leading authority on what makes us do what we do. So one of the reasons I went into social psychology and social science is that fascinates me. Like, why do we believe what we believe? You know, because 99.9% .9 of what we believe, it's not that we empirically proved it. We're just simply trusting somebody that we think has the right answer. And so we, through confirmation bias, we self-select that kind of thing. So, you know, that book Behave is, is a monster book. Uh, I would also say in kind of that same vein, uh, Sapiens by, by the, uh, you know, historian, recent, recent cultural icon, uh, uh, Noah Yuval Hari, it was an amazing one, but uh, you know, those are just three in the last couple of years I've read that, that really, I, th I think can shape a person like to say, besides just nutrition and physiology and career, like anybody could read these books and say, now I'm, you know, my life is literally going to be 10 times better because of this book. That that's the kind of stuff I like to read. Yeah. I feel like uh, the upside of stress really kind of changed my perspective because we're always taught stress is bad. Stress is bad. Stress is going to kill you. But as I think man's search for meaning is about right somebody out there's got a lot worse than us so mm. shut up and just put your head down and let's go get it um and just really having that mindset um mind over matter is you know really what's matter and I always say to my kids that I've coached even my clients right it's your body hears everything your you, your mind says so make sure you're feeling that thing the right way and just keep killing it because it's life in general is 90 percent mental so if you got that aspect of it um you got you got 90 percent of it down we just got to do the work yeah. And, you know, Simon Sinek became famous for that simple question. What's your why? And, and that is the central element of man's search for meaning. You know, when, when Viktor Frankl was in the Auschwitz camps and he had already done his dissertation, PhD dissertation, or as a psychiatrist on, on logotherapy, he was able to sit here and apply this, you know, why do some people just give up and die? And some people will do anything it takes to survive. And it was because they literally had a reason to live. They had something meaningful enough to live for. And so people who say they suffer from depression and anxiety and so forth in today's culture, I just want to say, you know what, just, just grow the fuck up, man. Like literally, like you just, there's nothing meaningful enough in your life that, that you want to, you can't get out of bed for and get excited about like that, that's that entitlement generation, you know, maybe a little bit too, too far postmodern Americanism. But uh, yeah, that, that's why I like those kind of books. I mean, it's just, they, they drive people to become better versions of themselves. Yeah. So where we'll wrap it up. We appreciate your time, Dr. Joe Klemzeski, correct? Yeah. Yes. So Nailed it. Uh, what, that's where why this is my favorite podcast ever. <laughs> For Reason our two listeners, four. right, Adam? 
our four <laughs> listeners now. I don't, whatever. Yeah, I think we, we might be double digits. Cause got to start sometime, man. <laughs> where where I can remember I remember my, my, my very first workshop I gave, we had three people show up and I'm like, I'm not going to quit. You know, the next, <laughs> the next, the next month it was eight, the next month, 18, you know, pretty soon we had 40, 50 people there every month. So yeah. Where can our listeners find you and where, what are some big things you could help them with right now if they were to reach out to you? Uh, so you can, you can email me at dr period J O E. So Dr. Joe at the You can go to the uh, but also my Instagram and Facebook are, are just, you know, at Joe Klimzeski. Um, I, I really like to do a couple different things. You know, number one, like I said, I, I, I do continue to maintain a, a small client load. Um, but what I, what I love to do more than anything right now is help coaches build their businesses. There, there are so many people, I literally have a, 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 a coach reaching out to me today who said, I'm not even a coach yet. I just want to get into coaching. I, I've had my own personal health transformation. She's in the medical field. So like, like you guys, she has the chops academically to do this. And she said, I don't even know where to start. Like, how do you build a coaching business? And I said, you have come to the right place. I, I know a thing about that. And so I, I just love to help coaches thrive and develop amazing practices. And if you don't know who he is, now you know, because he's the godfather. He's the only one and only Dr. Joe. Sir, we appreciate your time. We will definitely hopefully have you back on for a part two on a different topic. Um, and it's always an honor to hear from you. Um, and we appreciate you and everything you've done for this industry, sir. I appreciate well, thanks, it. Thanks, guys. I, hey, you guys are the next generation, man. So that's that's what I'm here for. Thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Thank you.